Welcome back to The Kicker. Thanks for kicking it with us. I am your host once again, David Uberti. Uh, I'm a staff writer for Columbia Journalism Review. we got a great show for you this week. We're talking about the tech editorial culture clash within journalism, whether Facebook should police fake news, and if so, how. Then also a topic that's bedeviled a lot of journalists, how to cover Donald Trump's tweets. Uh, I'm joined today by Noska Renner. She's an associate editor for CJR and the Tau Center for Digital Journalism. Noska, what's up? Hi, Dave. And also a very special guest today, which I'm excited about, uh, Emily Bell. She's a director for the Tau Center of Digital Journalism. She does a lot of work on the intersection of journalism and technology. Emily, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Very excited to be back on a podcast after all these years. Yeah, definitely, especially this one. Uh, We want to talk a little bit about an article that Emily wrote for CJR's new print issue, which is uh, hitting newsstands soon. If you're a subscriber, it should be arriving in your inbox. Emily uh, wrote an article titled The Tech Editorial Culture Clash and sort of a summary deck uh, said, quote, closing the gulf between science and the humanities is crucial to keeping journalism relevant. So I'm curious to kick things off, Emily, why is this so important and why is this so difficult for journalists to do? Well, I'm not sure that it is difficult anymore. I think that some of the article, I take a kind of historical perspective and say, you know, when I was in a newsroom, I was um, the head of digital on the editorial side at The Guardian for 10 years. And we did probably a better job than a lot of people in terms of having interdisciplinary teams. And yet there was still always that underlying tension of there is a way to do things which um, product or the technical team products, I I get the P word in there nice and early, that they will approach things in a a different way to the way that editorial decision-making was was traditionally carried out. Why it's important, I think, is that um, we're in a world now where, you know, the platforms that we work on are, you know, the creations of engineers. Um, Most of our production tools and our pastor audience are created by engineers. The analytics that we look at when we release things into the wild, you know, they are a kind of a, a metric measure of what we do and we're dealing in stories we're dealing in a, in a world which is increasingly about structured data and how that is used so to to be a journalist who stands outside completely the kind of literacy of technology I think is to really be a very disempowered reporter in almost any area and to not really understand the ecosystem in which we're operating is very disempowering from a point of view of strategy and direction. So so I think that kind of even though the division and the oppositional description of technology versus editorial is actually not that helpful, I think it is a kind of a, a, a division that we need to both understand, examine, and, and, and in journalism try to close up, if that makes sense. Yeah, definitely. I think one of the interesting things that you bring up in your piece is sort of the, per- the perception is that there's sort of a trade-off between investing in your in-house technology and relying on outside tech um, and focusing more on your own journalism. And your argument, and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of that you think that's a false bargain in some senses. Yeah, I do. So I guess, that you know, this is kind of why it's relevant now. So at a time when these amazing uh, social platforms are producing incredible tools, which um, we could not afford to produce ourselves, uh, when they're actually creating whole new platforms like virtual reality, newsrooms are under a lot of economic pressure to say, well, 
if we de-invest in certain types of technology and build, we can outsource that to Facebook or we can outsource it to Google. They will always do it better. And this is, you know, this is right at the heart of the probably the most kind of important debate in journalism at the moment, which is do you build your house on somebody else's land? <laughs> do you hand over the keys and say, okay, drive this car in whichever direction you want? You know, we'll shout something from the back seat and hope we get there in the end. Or do we do, do we actually kind of in participating in that we lose some of the independence of journalism? We lose some of the kind of accountability of it. And I think we lose the ability to report that world as well. So I think that bargain that says, hey, and I completely understand the pressure to outsource to third parties. But that thing that says you can do that and retain some kind of independence and, you know, kind of direction as a news organisation, I think is wrong. And so I think you have to invest. You're looking. Don't you think it's too late now, though? It's never too late. I think that we've heard the it's too late argument over and over and over again. And, you know, it, so no. <laughs> but how could, how could, you know, how could the New York Times build something that's as not just as functional as Facebook, but as you like the point of Facebook is that like, everybody's there now. Like, that's the power that it holds. Well, except that I think the people will continue to evolve the sort of... Um, they will continue to evolve in the type of experiences that they want. And I do think that Facebook, this relationship between Facebook and the information we get has been exposed in the most dramatic way over the last, you know, three months of the election as to being, you know, not the only way and not the only place that people want to be. And, we, you know, we've seen this before where you get mass kind of, um, you, you get real sort of like aggregation in any one market towards one large entity, um, whether it's Walmart or whether it's Facebook. And people actually kind of instinctively pull away from that and then they want to actually engage with something which is which they feel is less mediated so that you're in this bizarre position where the media is currently mediated by a pretty obscure platform and I think there are a lot of informed readers so if you're the New York Times I think this is pretty simple which there are a lot of informed readers who do not want to be part of that and who want to give you money so they're now giving like what is it sort of 10 times the level of subscriptions post you know the Trump victory than before if you don't have your own entity, then kind of cashing in on those real opportunities of, of change um, will elude you. Well, if you were still head of digital at The Guardian now, what would you do? Well, I've always said and will continue to say, you know, invest in technologically literate journalists and invest in editorially literate technologists hmm. and think about how those teams are not separate, but think about how they are the same and make a new type of news organization. That's what I would do. So there. <laughs> do you think it's harder to teach a journalist how to do tech or teach a technologist how to do journalism? I think it's way harder, actually, to teach a journalist how to do tech because we, we you know, t t at the moment, because journalists have, you know, they tend to come from a sort of a lit literate culture. Humanities, yeah. And we, you know, we, we engage with that stuff from sort of, you know, the moment, almost mo the moment we're born, whereas right. actually kind of, you know, for an engineer, you have been exposed or you're much more skillful in, you know, a world of, you know, kind of nu numeracy. Now, for whatever reason, our education system <laughs> our world is organized in such a way that it is easier to perhaps or more familiar to work in the humanities than it is or regular to, to work in engineering. And there are some really complex problems in engineering. 
Um, I think this will change over time. I, you know, I do think that kind of the tools will get easier, but also our, our understanding will change. And my wonderful colleague, Mark Hansen, who I quote extensively in the piece because he's really the sort of genius on this, he always says, you know, there is a problem at the moment that, you know, K through 12, that so the high school education isn't solving for, that journalism schools and data programs will solve for. But over time, what we really should be looking for is something where words and you know, real sort of like numeracy, computational sort of thinking sits sit on, on a par. I just think that it's in some ways like a personality difference. And I think I, like I'm very guilty of feeling like when I work with developers on anything, I'm sort of like my way is just common sense. And I don't understand but, how much I have to like delineate things and spell them out. And it's so frustrating to me. And it feels like it is a skill that I need to learn, but I'm also just really stubborn but you're a ridiculous <laughs> you are a ridiculous words person i speak as someone who emphasis who, on ridiculous ridiculous who's 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 edited my almost flawless pieces into <laughs> even into even better shape than they were in previously so you are a very little you know and i do think that what's interesting is that when you work with product teams or you work with developers that what you've actually put your finger on is that absolute different way of thinking and I say this in the piece, comes out of a different incentive structure. Mm. Like like nobody is incentivized in engineering to produce something which is momentarily sort of impactful and beautiful, but then ultimately pretty useless. And in words, <laughs> arguably, we're incentivized to do that all the time. <laughs> and as Emily said, her piece is flawless. It was already published at cjr.org, uh, and it's going to be in our print issue, which will hit newsstands soon. You should definitely read it. All right, moving on to our next topic. Uh, we want to talk an op-ed in the New York Times published yesterday. It was by a journalist named Jessica Lesson. She is the founder of a tech media startup called The Information, which we have featured in CJR's latest print issue. And I think that piece is going to be online later this afternoon on Wednesday. The title of her op-ed is Facebook Shouldn't Fact Check. And I'm going to read a paragraph or two from her piece. Lesson says, what those demanding that Facebook accept responsibility for becoming the dominant news aggregator of our time seem to be overlooking is that there is a big difference between the editorial power that individual news organizations wield and that which Facebook could. Such editorial power in Facebook's hands would be unprecedented and dangerous. This is a pretty common, I guess, countertake to the take that Facebook should police fake news. And I, I confess, I, th I think that the entire piece is built on a straw man. I don't think anyone's really arguing for giving Facebook editorial powers, powers in the way that newspapers have them. But at the same time, if you were you know, ask me right on the spot of what exactly Facebook should be doing differently, I couldn't point you to specific examples of you know, what I would change. So I'm here with the Tau Center folks. Who, who dominate this Our domain. Wheelhouse. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what do you guys think? What actually, what are specific steps that Facebook should or should not be taking um, to address this problem, which people are paying increasing amount of attention to? So I guess the first thing to say is that I really fundamentally disagree with Jess Lesson's underlying kind of underpinning principle of her argument, um, which is that you're giving Facebook too much power quote unquote, right. if you allow them in some way to arbitrate between what is credible and, and what's not credible. Facebook already has an enormous amount of power 
in this area. Right. And, and, and the, one of the problems is we haven't actually really discussed what the responsibility is that goes with that power. So her answer to that is, well, there isn't any responsibility. Right. We sort it out for ourselves. And then you actually look at how kind of aggregational platforms work and think that that cannot be right. And, I, you know, her point about there's one truth, you know, if there's one truth that's Facebook's truth, you know, I will now say the unsayable, which is I would rather they did that and we know about it and how they reached that set of opinions and judgments than have what we have at the moment, which is a, hey, guys, we don't interfere. Um, we're not here to decide what's right and what's not right. That's not our area of expertise. And yet they've designed a system that presents everybody with a wide variety of information in exactly the same way, prioritized against an algorithm which we have no way of interrogating and which spreads information in a way which is completely illegible to anybody who is outside Facebook. And as you've pointed out before, it's really about avoiding accountability. They already have the power. It's just that they don't want they don't want to be accountable for for editing. We're not a media company. Right. You know, and. I kind of get why that's the argument which it prevails within within Facebook. I think that they are an editorial company, and I think increasingly what will happen is that platforms. You know, one of the reasons that Facebook isn't challenged in the market in a way is because it is this. Oh, look, we're everything to everybody, and in fact, that's how they've acquired their market dominance and their position in the market. So, if you follow that sort of logic through, you're saying, well. At no point will we think about ways that we might put a break on that or where we get Facebook to declare their hand about really what they will do or what they won't do. And you and in a way you kind of lock the market down to, you know, never producing a, a kind of diversity of ecosystem within that. Whereas what's happened with Twitter I think is really interesting. So they've gone into a they've gone in a really editorial direction, which is sure. we don't like the far right. We're going to kick you off our platform. Right. We'll take away Milo's blue tick. Bye, Milo. Bye-bye. Um, and 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 what will happen is, you know, Gab um, is the new, you know, kind of far-right social platform, which has sprung up. And let's let's test it and see how that... But, you know, kind of, I, I can't see a situation in which Facebook is not going to go in that direction in, in one way or another. And then to your point, Dave, about, you know, what do we do? There isn't going to be one fix, and it isn't necessarily going to come just from sort of within Facebook's own policy or editorial team. And I th- yeah, I think face, uh, fake news is not necessarily the core issue that we have to look at. Like, there's so much focus on like what tool, like what Chrome extension can we build to like alert you to <laughs> fake news? But it's right. I certainly really think fake news has been played issue. up just with regard to the election. I think that's it's sort it's sort of become a scapegoat in some senses Although for mainstream journalists. One compelling idea that I've seen is um, that we should think about posts on Facebook like we think about our email inbox, and that it should be sorted like spam, where you the it sort of gets better for you over time over what you want to see, um, and and categorizes things more. Yeah, I think that there's, you know, and, and when you say we don't, you know, people don't want a Chrome extension that goes, hang on a second, this is completely made up. I mean, I would quite like 
when there is a story which is just completely factually incorrect. And actually, you know, Jessica Lesson says this in her op-ed in the New York Times today. You know, she says, OK, so the Pope didn't back Donald Trump <laughs> and he didn't release a statement about it. So maybe it's not a good idea to let that proliferate all over the platform. But but hey, what do we do about it? And I think that this is where actually there is a design issue for Facebook. And, and it has to be solved at the platform level. Because at the moment, you can flag and report things, but only if you see them. Right. And if you don't see them, and you don't flag, you know, you don't flag and report them, and they continue to circulate, and this is where you get this secondary effect of people saying, "Well, hang on a second, there's also like an echo chamber here because Facebook doesn't want oppositional views meeting each other." Because what happens when oppositional views meet each other is that people shout at each other and then, then their feelings get hurt. And then they <laughs> get out of the... So they get right. off they their Facebook. Yeah. They leave Facebook. And, and so I just think that saying it's not Facebook's responsibility, it shouldn't you know, be doing anything about this, or you know, kind of we don't want to give it that much power, just completely misses the point. That's my view. Okay, welcome back to our final topic. Emily Bell unfortunately had to leave us. She's in very high demand, but we appreciate her time. Uh, and instead, we have the pleasure of joining on the show uh, once again Pete Vernon, a Delacorte Fellow for CGR. Hello, Pete. Hey, Dave. And also Corey Shouten, making his kicker debut. Corey is a senior editor at CJR. Hello, Corey. Hello, it's great to be here. And the final topic we wanted to discuss here was something that's been really challenging for journalists, especially in the last month or so, which is Donald Trump's Twitter feed. He obviously used this as a primary form of communication over the course of his campaign. But now that he is the president-elect, each one of his 140-character outbursts seems to take on new import. No one in journalism seems to have sort of a unified strategy for dealing with this unprecedented way of communication. But over the last couple of days or so, uh, a slew of analysts have written takes on how they think journalists should handle them. Pete, you sort of compiled a rundown of the different you know, tactics proposed. Um, let's hear basically what people are saying. Yeah, you mentioned not having any answers. Uh, we do, as journalists, seem to have lots of opinions, though, about how we should be covering these tweets. Um, the New York Times had a story earlier today that framed the question, I think, in a, a helpful way. They said, quote, does an early morning tweet amount to a planned shift in American policy? And I think that's a good way of thinking about it. We don't seem to know. Some people have suggested we shouldn't be following Trump's tweets at all. We shouldn't be retweeting them because that's feeding a troll. Jack Schaefer for Politico had a piece arguing that journalists should curb their Twitter enthusiasm. Um, I need not, to. <laughs> some of us, some a of bad us, joke. <laughs> a bad joke. Uh, some of us could probably use that advice in, in many walks of life. But in terms of dealing with the president-elect, a lot of other journalists have said, basically, when the president says something, or in this case, the president-elect, it is news. Chris Wallace from Fox News had a quote in that New York Times piece where he said, under any definition, it's news what the president says is news. Margaret Sullivan in the Washington Post um, had maybe more measured advice saying that not everything is a five alarm fire. Uh, and I think um, earlier, Emily echoed that in some pretty good advice that she had. Yeah, I think she actually put it sort of my favorite way I've heard so far. And she actually left us with this as a parting thought. So we'll play a clip from what she had to say. I think we should cover them like we would any press statement. You know, we just have to accept right. that this is how the president-elect is going to run his press operation through his Twitter fees. Right. So anyone who's been a journalist for some time, and I was a business journalist, you'll know this as well. Um, Dave and Norska, which is that you get a load of press statements from anybody's yes. office. And most of them are bad. 
And most of them are bad. I think that really makes a lot of sense. And we could sort of apply lessons that we've learned over the course of decades to, you know, this new form of communication. And this really sort of got under my skin earlier this morning. So 6.39 a.m., uh, early morning tweets, as Trump is wont to do. He said, I'll be holding a major news conference in New York City with my children on December 15th to discuss the fact that I will be leaving my great business in total in order to fully focus on running the country in order to, all caps, make America great again. Within a couple of minutes, I was laying in bed looking at my uh, cell phone, as I'm <laughs> likely to do in most days. Uh, I have news alerts from AP, The Guardian, and Washington Post. The Washington Post, Donald Trump tweets that he will leave his business in total to focus on presidency. The Guardian, Donald Trump, I'm leaving my business interests, quote, in total. They certainly bought this hook, line, and sinker. I would hope that this is sort of an inflection point insofar as us at least adding a little bit of context in terms of how we headline coverage of this and you know treat them more generally. I don't know. What, what are your guys' thoughts? Well, I don't think the uh, think piece writers um, had had been published yet. Uh, I don't think I don't think the news writers had read all these think pieces about how better to tr- cover Trump's Twitter account yet. So maybe maybe this was the last bad example. Um, of them jumping the gun because, you know, the headlines just – once the headline's out there, people, are, people aren't going to forget it. Um, yeah, that, that's the thing that I was thinking about with the news alert in particular. I mean, obviously, very difficult to, to include context within a news alert. But if you get that on your phone, which these obviously went out to millions of people, once that germ of an idea is in someone's head, adding the different layers of whether this is true or not or to what extent Trump's actually going to step away from his businesses, et cetera, et cetera, I mean, that's only going to get more difficult Like the longer we go on with that as sort of like a baseline premise. I have to say it doesn't bother me that much. I think – that I agree with Emily that the tweet should be covered. And I think it sort of speaks to how much Twitter is becoming a professional space where people put out opinions and releases. And Twitter is archived by the Library of Congress already. It has been since the Arab Spring. And as far as like contextualizing and headlines go, of course, but that's just doing better journalism around tweets, which should be covered. The tweets themselves, I mean, I think that the fact that Trump uses Twitter as his main source of communication is something that we definitely need to acknowledge and pay attention to. It means that he can decontextualize anything. He can send out short things rather than long press releases explaining or news his reasoning or news conferences. But that, again, that's more a lack of stuff around the tweets. It's not the tweets themselves. But you mentioned, Oscar, like the we need to hear this. OK, it's news. But when you have 140 characters and you're saying Trump tweets, three million people voted illegally, is there not some responsibility given the format and given that idea, the, the reality that once an idea is out there, it's going to get repeated? Do news organizations have an obligation to say Trump tweets falsely or Trump tweets without evidence? Is there editorializing that's necessary in those tweet headlines and I guess in the headlines in print and online? Oh, definitely. I mean, if if news organizations don't do that immediately in every case, that might be okay. That's just like the pressure of the news cycle. And we see stories all the time where you report what you know and then you add to it. And I, I think like maybe we need to come up with a better shorthand for when Trump says something that is a lie. I mean, maybe maybe it will just L-word. be... <laughs> or like wrong. <laughs> but Corey, you were like... You were pretty angry about this with respect to the New York Times story this morning, like that there was not context immediately. Provided. Yeah, Corey, let's hear your yeah. rant. Yeah, well, it'll, it'll be toned down slightly here. But to Noska's point, I think there's also a risk of trying to provide too much contextualization to a tweet. Um, you know, essentially the carrier news out of Indiana that 
fewer jobs are going to be lost there because of Trump's expert deal making. You know, the Times story this morning had a line. It also signals that Mr. Trump is a different kind of Republican willing to take on big business, at least in individual cases. I mean, here's a case of there's there's a few tweets. You have absolutely no details of this deal. You have no idea whether Trump drove a hard bargain or he gave away the store to Carrier to, to make this happen on a small level. You have no no idea yet what the implications are of this deal. And yet you have the Times trying to provide some you know sweeping take uh, that contextualizes tweets. And it didn't it doesn't work out here, I don't think. Right. So it's, I mean, it's a difficult line to walk, right? Because you do need to have the context, you know, as you said, Nasca, like if we cover these things, you do need to add something to it. But at the same time, you cannot can't make mountains out of molehills. Exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, it's a tweet. Yeah. Like, I tweet. We all tweet here. Everybody on tweets. The other <laughs> hand, on the other hand, as a, as a former uh, English major, I have to say I love a good exercise in close reading. And that's what it's, this is what it's giving journalists. And I will say most of the coverage of that carrier deal, you know, Wall Street Journal, Washington Post, I mean, I think, I think they were maybe a little more disciplined about saying what we don't know. Um, I, I think it's really important for journalists to remember that. And that's and that's one of the things I think we should do more often, acknowledge what we don't know. We still don't have the details. And I think more people are doing a good job of that. Also, I think we need to recognize how amazing it is as reporters to just get unfiltered Trump. It's like insane. nobody's editing his it's tweets. Insane. You can totally it's see it. It's inconsistent. You know he's sitting in front of like Fox and Friends just Probably like watching the morning sounds, shows. He sounds nuts but right. it, you know in some ways it's like slightly a relief to not have everything churned through like the ringer of like presidential speech. I mean this gets to a broader question which I'm trying to explore and grapple with a little bit for a piece on our site cjr.org next week which is that is something that Trump says inherently newsworthy because he's president? I feel like when you have in the past, you know, in modern history, you have, like you said, Nasca, there's just so much like double checking and sort of like presidents and their aides like run statements and whatnot through the ringer. They test it. They pull it. Yada, yada, yada. And by the, by the time it actually gets out into public, you can pretty much surmise that, like, this is something that they have thought out yeah, or believe vanilla, in or whatnot. Whereas with language. Trump, I mean, it's Trump. He's tweeting. Like, this is the press office, as Emily said. Like, this is, this is the PR machine. And it's worked to an incredible extent thus far. The question is, it's like, is there so much noise within his tweets that we can't actually get to sort of the nut of the, of the issue? Yeah, I think we're not built as an industry to deal with this. And Corey mentioned certain outlets are getting better. I think that's okay. Right now, we we have to get better, but it's going to be a little bit of a learning curve. Yeah, I just think journalists need to like go with the flow a little bit more and recognize like the way that technology is bringing communication and just embrace that and stop trying to be like, you can't do it. Like, <laughs> like Trump can't tweet things. Like there have to be press releases. There have to be like press conferences. Like yes, there should be press conferences, but y- you got to work with what you got. Thanks again for listening to the Kicker. Subscribe to us on iTunes and please write us a review. Um, if you tweet at CJR, I will try to hit you back. Um, and I want to thank again my colleagues for joining me today. Associate editor Nasca Renner. Nasca, thanks. Thank you, Dave. Pete Vernon. I really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. And Corey, you just killed it with your CJR, the kicker debut. You know, I think we should have Trump on next time. I will put in the request for that. And once again, I'm Dave Uberti, staff writer for CJR. Thanks again for listening. We will be back next week.